Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Welcome into Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Big Wednesday show lined up for you today. If you are wondering about the state of the MLS-CBA negotiations that went until 6 a.m. this morning, the man who's got all of the information over at ESPNFC, Jeff Carlisle, will join us in just a couple of minutes. We'll get an update with Jeff on what's going on as of right now, what the owners have offered, what the players have countered with, what kind of uh, what kind of food they're getting delivered to the negotiating table, something like that. And then at 10.30 today, we're going to take a, a little bit of a turn, get away from the MLS-CBA negotiations. And talk to Brian Blickenstaff of Vice Sports. He's got an excellent article over there about Tom Beyer, 1040, excuse me. Tom Beyer, who's the man, the American soccer coach from upstate New York, who went and spread the word of the game and taught technique to millions of Japanese kids and is now looking to do the same thing in China. He's part of a committee. He's part of the campaign to turn China into a world soccer power. We'll talk to Brian about his chat with Tom, the man known as Tom-san in Japan. If you haven't heard this story, it's 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 very, very interesting story. And again, the guy's like the Johnny Appleseed of soccer in the Far East. It should be a good discussion there. I'm going to take the opportunity here before we get into the headlines to be a little selfish. This is what, uh, what the owners and the players are doing, right? They're being selfish. They're keeping us from our soccer. So I'm going to take my cues from them and point you in the direction of the Podcast Awards, podcastawards.com. We've been nominated here at Soccer Morning for a Sports Podcast Award. We're up against some extremely heavy hitters. I mean, the the Dan Patrick shows on that list, a bunch of fantasy football shows, you know how big that is. So in order to have any chance at all, we need you to go vote, podcastawards.com. I think you can vote once a day. You have to register and put your email in, and I know that's a mess and it's a hassle. If you don't want to do it, fine. No big deal. I'm just going to, I feel like we have to do our duty. We got nominated. Somebody nominated us, so thank you to to those of you who did. So I feel like we need to pass this along uh, to, uh, to, for ha- to have you vote for us. Podcastawards.com. Scroll down the page. You'll see the sports section. All right. Here we go with the headlines. Again, top story has to be the MLS-CBA negotiations. Late last night, the players and the owners meeting in Washington, D.C. A couple of uh, friends of the show and friends of Backheel.com, Aaron Stoller and Brooke Tunstall, were there camping out uh, at the location where the negotiations were happening, keeping an, keeping an eye on things. Again, reported that the players stayed until 6. Also reports that Don Garber and some members of his staff, staff slipped out around midnight. Now, that doesn't necessarily that mean that nothing was getting done between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. Uh, Jeff Carlisle, and again, we'll talk to him shortly, says that uh, Deputy, uh, Deputy Commissioner Mark Abbott was certainly in the room. And remember, single uh, single entity is Mark Abbott's baby. He's the one that came up with this concept, that pitched this concept when the league was starting. So if anybody's in that, uh, anybody should be in that room to explain to the players why you can't have free agency or why this free agency we're offering doesn't go far enough because of single entity, it's Mark Abbott. Uh, a couple of things in the news. And again, all of these details are going to come from Jeff in a little bit. So if, you miss, uh, if you're missing something, if I don't get to a detail, I'm sure Jeff will fill us in. Some of this is, is very interesting in terms of the years of service and the age of the players who are possibly being offered free agency by MLS. It started out at 32 years of, of age and 10 years of service with the same team, which I think eliminated pretty much everybody. 
I think maybe Brad Davis next year qualifies, and that's it. So if you have one guy who's who's eligible for for free agency, that's not really free agency. Now it did come down in reports to something like twenty eight years old and eight years of service, maybe eight years of service regardless of team, eight years of MLS service. That opens it up to um, a, a decent pool of, of something like 60 players, if I saw the number correctly. Whether or not the players are interested in that kind of free agency, we don't know yet. And the kicker here is that reports say it wouldn't necessarily include a big salary bump. It wouldn't be open bidding but for players' services by numerous teams. It would be a regimented, rule-described uh, salary bump of something like 5%. 10%, sorry, 10%. And I, I think we all know that that's not going to cut it. So we'll see what the players do today. Uh, Jeff Carlisle in just a couple of minutes. Let's uh, let's look to action on the field. Rookie Cameron Porter scored a 94th minute goal for the Montreal Impact to put them into the semifinals of the CONCACAF Champions League over Pachuca last night in Montreal. Uh, 30,000 people at Olympic Stadium going absolutely bonkers when Porter scored that goal. Pachuca had gone up very late in the match on a penalty. It looked for all the world like Montreal was bowing out to a Mexican power and no one would have been surprised. Montreal played their butts off over the course of this series. 2-2 draw on Pachuca to set themselves up. A 1-1 draw on Montreal. They win on away goals. Cameron Porter taking that ball from Callum Malice. 60-yard ball in the air to the chest of Cameron Porter from Callum Malice. So full credit there to Malice. Things were so crazy on Twitter last night when this goal happened that people were getting the passer wrong. They were getting the goal scorer wrong. And I don't blame them. It was it was pandemonium. It was difficult to know who was on the field at that point. Lots of people giving Jack McInerney credit for the goal. Nope. It's the kid out of Princeton, Cameron Porter, who's, uh, who, who just calmly, calmly took that down on his chest and poked it in. Uh, so big, uh, big credit to Montreal. Now the question will be, of course, whether or not they'll play in the semifinals if an MLS uh, player's uh, strike happens. Lots of questions there. Some reports out of Montreal um, that at least uh, from the from the mouth of Bakari Samari, the players would like to play it even if there isn't an agreement. We'll see what happens there. Uh, in the Premier League yesterday, you had Southampton climbing into fifth place with a one nothing win over Crystal Palace. Aston Villa with an injury time penalty to beat West Brom 2-1 in that local derby. Big win for Aston Villa. Remember, they're sort of, they're trying to stave off relegation. It's been a very, very poor season for Villa. They've got, they've got Tim Sherwood in now, and he's, uh, he's an emotional guy. Tim Sherwood's an emotional guy. Is that what they need to keep them up? Questions over whether or not he's the most, uh, tactically sound coach, but maybe this is what Villa needs. A little bit of fight. Now, you get the lucky break of a penalty. I'm not sure that's on Tim Sherwood, but good enough for, uh, for Villa yesterday. Uh, in uh, rumor news, if you want to call it that, uh, agent Ron Waxman, who represents many, many people, including Bob Bradley and Michael Bradley, has said that uh, Bob is not in the running for that Aston Villa director of football job. Speaking of the villains, there was some chatter about this. In fact, this Ron Waxman went ahead and debunked this rumor on Twitter only minutes after I'd even seen it originate. So I don't know how quickly this went through uh, the press there in England, but Bob Bradley, uh, I guess, staying at Steinbeck and uh, do, continuing the work he's been doing there. Uh, Ron, Ron Waxman also adding to the rumor mill when it comes to MLS player movement, reporting that Xavi will go to NYCFC this summer. Some uh, some talk out of New York. Jason Christ talking about identifying Xavi as a target for the new club. He would clearly, 
clearly be a fantastic addition to that team when you've got David Villa up top and Frank Lampard alongside him in midfield. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, our friend Jeff Carlisle from ESPN FC, colleague of mine, doing amazing work on the CBA negotiations. Straight up reportage, people. He'll be on the line with me when I come back. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. You're talking too loud. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Very excited to have on the phone with me Jeff Carlisle from ESPN FC. Let's get rid of that music there. Uh, doing fantastic work reporting on the MLS CBA negotiations. Jeff, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you? I'm good. Um, all right, so people have been uh, very closely watching your Twitter feed over the last at least 48 hours and hopefully before that. Uh, because you've got, you've been able to get some details on what's going on in Washington. Um, I don't know how else to ask this, but what is going on in Washington, Jeff? Well, <laughs> uh, I guess I could tell you the talks yesterday lasted until 6 a.m. this morning, Eastern time. Um, you know, there were some reports that, that Don Garber and, and his folks had left uh, much earlier than that, but I'm told that uh, Mark Abbott and, and some of the other members of the MLS negotiating team were, were there you know, much later, and uh, and they're scheduled to resume talks again uh, later this morning, uh, which I take that as a good sign. You know, at least they're still talking. But you know, in terms of the deal, you know, certainly when word got out yesterday that that it looked like MLS had budged a little on the free agency issue, you know, certainly I was more optimistic that a deal was going to get done. But then when when some of the other details started to leak out. Uh, some of those provided by uh, my ESPN colleague Taylor Twelman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then you know, I think that optimism started to disappear a little bit. You know, there's like a you know they're offering like a ten percent cap on raises for free agents. Uh, you know, certainly the terms. You know, you know having to be 28 years old and have eight years of service in the league. It's not an or; it's an and. Right. Uh, you know, that started to look a little bit less palatable as well. And then some issues about. Uh, you know, the salary cap and, and how much that's going to expand, you know, that that started to become a sticking point. So, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, where there was once optimism, there, there's a little bit more skepticism now. And, uh, you know, certainly I've been saying all along that, I, that if pressed, I, I thought there would be a strike. You know, I, I put it just a little bit north of 50-50 in terms of the, the chances of that happening. And I'm, I'm I'm sticking to that at at the moment, but there's still a little bit of time left to try to get a deal done. So that's the good news. Yeah, as you said, the devil is in the details, and just when it looked like on the face of it, the players were making some gains or at least getting MLS to crack a bit on the free agency question. Uh, we get those those issues like the ten percent cap, and I guess what that is, uh, maybe you can speak to this. Is that is that MLS attempting to call the players bluff on the idea that this is a philosophical question or a a, a uh, uh, you know what's right and what's wrong in terms of choice rather than it is a monetary question? Yeah, I mean it's I think that's one way of putting it, but it, it's it, I think it's really you know giving with one hand and, and trying to take back with the other. Uh, you know it's you know they keep talking about it. You know they they want to keep costs down 
and they want it to be predictable. And uh, I, you know, I think for, for the for the owners and for MLS, this is one way of achieving that. Um, but it's you know, I I don't think that's a deal that the players are going to take at this point. I I think uh, MLS is going to have to give a little bit more. You know, if we're going to see. LA and Chicago kick off on Friday as scheduled. You know, um, we heard that that uh, three ownership groups were going to DC. I don't know who else is in the room, but we do. We were told, or there was, it was reported that Greg Kerfoot was there, that Jonathan Kraft was there representing, obviously his father and the Revs, and then Clark Hunt was in the room, and then subsequently came out that maybe Clark Hunt was the hardliner. Who's on the other side? Who's leading this thing for the players? I mean, besides maybe Foose and and Eddie Pope. Well, I think it's the the members of the executive board. You know, it's guys like Jeff Lorenowitz and, and Todd Donovan and and Dan Kennedy. Uh, Brad Evans uh, is another one. I, there's one name that I'm forgetting, uh, but uh, you know, I think I think it's those guys that are that are leading the charge on, on the player side. So, uh, you know, and these are all veteran guys that have been through this before. Um, you know, last time, uh, you know, I, I think it was a little bit of a new experience for a lot of guys, and uh, but certainly this time around, the uh, the executive board. And, and, you know, last time we had guys like Pat Onstad. So, you know, it wasn't like you know, these guys were, uh, you know, complete neophytes when it, we came to this kind of thing. But uh, it is a veteran group, very experienced, w- well-versed in the issues. You know, I, I've talked with Todd uh, several times during that, you know, this whole process. And, uh, you know, he, he's a very intelligent guy and, uh, you know, certainly uh, is very much aware of what's important to to the union membership. So, you know, it's guys like that that are that are trying to lead things for the union. Well, we we know that there were a lot of other players who came to DC. I don't know, uh, taking part, um, you know, obviously are they there for moral support? I mean, I'm not suggesting that they don't have a reason to be there, because, but I just bring this up because then we get the reports that, you know, the Chicago Fire contingent has flown back to Chicago. And I, I don't know what that means. I, I guess I suppose it would be guesswork to to put any stock into whether or not uh, the fire players leaving DC means they might play tomorrow, or uh, sorry, Friday night um, in LA. But is, is are the rest of those players are they there just to as a show of force? I think it's that, but it's also a way of you know easily disseminating information, okay. to, you know, to their teammates. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the negotiations are very fluid, and things are changing all the time. So. You know, I think it's just a, an easier way to, to kind of get the word out on how things are going and and also to get some feedback about, you know, how acceptable certain aspects of, of the proposal, you know, are. So uh, so I think that's why you have the basically the the player reps uh, and, there, and you know, there's two, in some cases, three per team. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think that's why those guys are there. When it comes to the ownership, um, again, we, we've been talking for a couple of, of years now leading into this uh, this negotiation, knowing that the CBA was going to expire and they'd be sitting back down, that there, there may be a division in terms of uh, progressive owners versus conservative owners. I don't know, um, you know, I don't know how, how conservative Clark Hunt might be versus, I don't know, Jonathan Kraft. Uh, but is it wrong to say that just because Clark Hunt might be the, the, the most hardline of the owners – that he's the only one pushing the league towards a conservative stance on this? No, I've heard Jonathan Kraft is is right there with him. Um, you know, I I think it's a fair characterization to say you know Clark is the most hardline, but he's certainly uh, it, it's it's not a situation where he's leading the charge and looking behind him and not seeing any anybody. You know, I, I you know I've heard that Jonathan Kraft is 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 pretty much right there with him on on most of the issues. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I would I would say it's it's not a fair characterization to say that Clark Hunt is, is the only guy who's, uh, 
you know, you know, taking his heels in. Well, without ascribing any sort of philosophy to either the owners to the ownership groups of either NYCFC or Orlando, uh, word is both of those teams are putting pressure on the league and, and I suppose the players indirectly to to make a deal. And we know Orlando's got a lot at stake. Sunday match, sixty five thousand season or sixty five thousand tickets sold. When they open up against NYCFC, this is if they don't get to throw that party, they they may have a false start in in their existence down in Central Florida. What kind of pressure can they actually provide, though? Well, it's yeah, I, I think it is limited, but I you know certainly they can make their voice heard and 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 talk about hey, how much you know. Not only are they going to lose a lot of money by not having this game, but I, I think it's just in terms of overall momentum and. And uh, just you know, overall awareness of this team in the market. I mean, when sixty-five thousand people show up in, in a stadium, everyone has to take notice in that particular market. And uh, so, I, I think it would be a significant loss for Orlando. But just in talking to some people on the league side, you know, their their whole approach—they're looking long term. They're not—they're not thinking about you know as much as you know. I think the players would like the negotiations to be about this weekend, MLS is thinking very long term and they're not going to take, you know, sign a deal that they think is bad for them just so that they can gain some benefits on, on the opening weekend of the season. There, you know, I, I think from their standpoint, there will be other games and, and other, other big moments for those expansion teams this season. So again, their, their perspective is longer term. Does that mean that the players don't have as much leverage as it might seem on the surface? I think they've had, they have more leverage than they've ever had. Uh, just in terms of the TV deal and the expansion fees that are getting paid, and and I think especially the, the amount of money that's being thrown at, at, at designated players, and in particular returning U.S. international players, uh, you know, I think that's that's where their leverage is, you know, in these particular negotiations. But I, I still think MLS has more. Um, yeah. You know, they're able to withstand a strike a lot better than the players, and so uh, you know, it's. You know, you know, if, if if their teams don't have any income, you know, I, I think you know they're going to be able to survive. I mean, obviously, the longer the strike goes, the more damage is done. But uh, you know, when you're talking about a player, you know, having to pay a mortgage and, and grocery bills and utilities and things like that, especially for these guys at the lower end of the pay scale, you know, that's that's some real pain right there. So uh, you know, that's why I think that the owners still still have most of the leverage in this situation. It certainly seems that way. Uh, now, one of the things that we considered coming into this was the the ability of the players to, um, you know, to to live with a strike. Uh, they would need a fund to do so. Uh, not it's reportedly not a very big one that they ho- hold themselves, and that's basically due to the fact it's a very young union. Uh, but there was some ch- some chatter and some reports uh, coming out of Canada that perhaps somebody might step up and support the MLS Players Union. Have you heard any more on that front? You know, I heard back from the NFLPA. They said that MLS has not reached out to them. Um, you know, I heard from one other league, uh, but they would they would not comment for the record. Uh, and then two other leagues, I, I've yet to hear anything back from. So uh, right now, I've heard I've, I've not seen or heard any evidence that other unions are going to to fund a strike by the MLSPU. And I, it's it's that's it, that's kind of a tricky one. I mean, when you give money to a union, you're, you're hoping that they they do things to help you and represent you as a player. Um, I think giving that money to another league that that, that might be a, a tricky sell. Sure. I, I, you know, even though you know, I'm sure all of those unions want nothing, or don't want to see a, a single entity league on their doorstep. I mean, I 
Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. But, yeah, I, um, I think there may be shades of gray here in terms of what yeah. the commitment might be. But but the, I think it is interesting to consider. And I'm not really questioning where that report came from. I think he was given some information. But you have sure. to wonder is if the if the players did if the MLS players did have a larger strike fund and were able are able to withstand you know more than a couple of weeks sitting out. You would imagine they want to publicize that because that is that, that is leverage they could have against the owners. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you would think so. I mean, you would want to make that known that hey, you know, we're in this for the long haul and we can't be bullied into taking a bad deal. Um, again, it's you know, it, it's the, the union has been very quiet about a lot of things. I mean, you know, the players uh, have been under something of a, of a gag order in terms of dealing with the media. Um, you know, that hasn't stopped some of them from talking, but, uh, you know, they, the union is keeping everything very, very yeah. close to the vest and, uh, you know, who knows, you know, what they're revealing in the, in the negotiating table. But, uh, yeah, you would think that you would want to get that information out there that, you know, Hey, we, we can survive a long strike. You know, I, I, I don't really want to focus too much on the details that we've heard that you've reported. I mean, not that they aren't germane to the ongoing discussions, but I wonder if they're going to be changing Again, and one of, part of that is um, the reputation of MLS, and perhaps you can speak to this not only in this negotiation but in previous CBA negotiations of a, a sort of take-it-or-leave-it approach. Here's an offer. If you don't take this one, we might change the, the parameters of it. We might pull something we're offering now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is, that is a tactic that MLS has used before, several, you know, more than once. Um, you know, they, I remember you know, last year when we were dealing with the referees uh, situation and, you know, their lockout, uh, you know, I heard repeatedly from the negotiators involved in that, that, that MLS, you know, there were things that were agreed to. And then in the course of negotiation, things were pulled off the table and, you know, you're kind of, uh, you know, going back, you know, starting over again on, on particular things. And, you know, it's an interesting tactic and it, it's certainly one that, that can frustrate, uh, you know, the opposite, you know, the opposing side, but, uh, you know, that, that's definitely, a a weapon in MLS's arsenal and something that they've, they've done before. And it wouldn't surprise me if they did it again. We've also heard that the, the length of the proposed agreement again, and this can change and who knows, but the length proposed was eight years. I imagine that's more to the owners liking, liking than the players liking, especially in a league that has been changing so much over the past decade and could see much larger revenues in say five years than they are, than they're getting right now. Yeah, I mean uh, that's definitely you know <laughs> that's definitely coming from the owners. I mean, especially if they if it's if it's a deal that they're happy with. I um, mean, you know, obviously this is their proposal that's on the table. So, you know, if the longer that they can keep uh, costs in line and uh, you know in the, in the eyes of the union depressed, uh, you know that that's certainly something that the owners want. And you know, I I cannot see the players agreeing to an eight year deal. Uh, you know, I, I think that's just too long. Uh, the, the previous two deals were five. You know, I, I think that's probably what uh, you know they would find acceptable. But uh, you know, certainly, uh, the longer the deal is, the, the more beneficial, more predictable the market is going to be for the owners. And that's you know, I, I had a couple of people when that news came out. Um, a couple of people on Twitter were saying, "Hey, you know, the NFL's agreement is ten years. The NBA's agreement is is ten years or eight years." The the difference here again is, is about. Uh, predictability in terms of, I mean, look, those are gigantic leagues with gigantic TV contracts. The players know that there might be more money coming in in the future, but they also know there's already a lot of money on the table. That's not going to be the case for MLS, and things can change rapidly. I just want to put that out there, Jeff. Yeah. I think people are a little confused as to why the NFLPA would agree to a 10-year deal 
and the MLS Players Union for for them eight is much too long. Yeah, it's the I mean the NFL is obviously a much more mature business model and and, and much more mature league than, than MLS is, and you know you know. I think everyone would agree that we've seen incredible growth in MLS, you know, over, over the last five years. I mean, just think about the players that are in the league now and the money that's being spent. And it, I think it, it speaks to how quickly things can change. And so, I, you know, I think that's why an eight-year deal uh, is not palatable to the players because obviously they're anticipating that, that revenues are going to continue to accelerate and uh, there's going to be more and more money coming into the league. So, uh so that's why that's why I think an eight year deal would 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 not be acceptable to the players at all. Uh, good question here from Greg. Um, again, I mentioned the ownership groups for Orlando and uh, NYCFC, and certainly we know that Phil Rollins is the kind of guy who likes to be out front. He's been the Pied Piper of soccer down there in Central Florida with Orlando City FC uh, SC. Excuse me, but NYC's ownership group is much more nebulous. We know Sheikh Mansour is ultimately ultimately behind City Football Group. Is he at all a player in any of this? Not that I've heard, um, but I'm sure his people are, are keeping a close eye on this. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there's been a, a lot of chatter and a lot of uh, attention and excitement. Uh, some consternation, too, when you think about the Frank Lampard stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I, obviously, there's a lot of excitement around this team. And, and you know, uh, it's a club that's eager to get started and, and get on the field and, and get some fans in the stands as well. So uh, I have not heard, uh, you know, that he's you know, super involved in this, but I'm sure he's keeping a close eye on things. And, and I guess I guess what we're going to get to here is we're creeping closer and closer to some sort of decision being made by the players when it comes to strike or no strike. Now, they either sign a, they either sign a deal or they, they take a strike vote. Is that coming? Is that soon? Have you heard any word on the street about when they might hold that vote? I have not. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've been badgering people trying to, trying to get a handle on, on – if a strike vote has already been taken, I think there was some speculation that last night they were going to uh, hold a strike vote. But, um, you know, I asked Nat Borchers over the weekend if a, if a strike vote had been taken and he, he, he declined to comment. So, uh, you know, that can be interpreted, you know, a couple of ways. I mean, either they're thinking about it or they've done it and they're just trying to keep it close to the vest. But, uh, yeah, I have no hard information that they've taken a strike. And vote. that's interesting to me because I remember vividly in 2010 that being something the players put out there. And it, it certainly wasn't a day or two ahead of the season. It was a little bit more than that. It was maybe a week or two out. There was there's this word that came out that the players had, had unanimous, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly approved a strike. Was that posturing then and, and now not holding a vote is posturing? Or, or how does that work? You know, I'm trying to think back you know, five years ago, exactly when the mediators entered the the conversation. And I'm wondering if that strike vote took place before okay. the mediators uh, joined, joined the conversation. Uh, obviously the mediators are there now and I'm, I'm, there's a little bit of speculation on my part, but you know, they, the mediators like everything to happen in the room. They want, you know, they don't want a lot of negotiating in public. Uh, they don't want a lot of saber rattling. So, uh, so I, I think that, you know, if a strike vote has been taken, that, you know, the, the fact that they're keeping that quiet might be at the mediator's behest. You know, again, we're all worried about the start of the season, Jeff, and, 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 and to the point about when the strike vote might happen or when there might be a strike declared. And I, I legally speaking, some things have to happen, if I'm not mistaken. I, I'm not a, a labor expert, clearly. Um, but when's the deadline? I mean, we, we talked about sort of the, 
the practical deadline being maybe tonight, especially if Chicago players have to fly to L.A. to play in a game on Friday or players have to fly Thursday to be ready for a game on Saturday. When is the, the deadline and when would the – any sense at all? Because I'm sure if, if you haven't heard about a strike vote, you don't know when they might call that. But any sense at all when they would have to? I mean, I could see this going until, you know, Friday morning. I mean, I I would think that you know just for practical purposes they they let guys know you know Thursday. I, you know, my, my my sense is that is when the deadline would be. But you know if if the union leadership feels like they're getting close to a deal, then you know I could see them trying to extend it out. You know, absolutely as far as they could. Um, and you know it's possible that a strike vote has already been taken, and it's just up to the the executive board and the, and the player reps to say, okay, we're doing this. Right. Um. So I mean, they you know they could have that. You know, they, they could have taken that vote already, you know, have that, you know, in their arsenal and and then when they need to say, OK, you know, we're, we're declaring a strike. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of moving parts, but I, I suspect Thursday is, is really kind of the, the drop dead date. All right. Well, I mean, again, we, we're, we're all worried about the uh, the start of the season. And, and, I, and I guess and you mentioned that maybe the players have as much leverage as they've ever had, but it still doesn't amount to enough leverage. And, and that's always going to be the case. I mean, I think that in any player versus management um, labor negotiation, whether it's uh, soccer in this country, and, and they certainly have less than, than maybe other leagues, but even the NFL or, or the NBA or Major League Baseball, those players have, they don't have as much leverage as the owners do because the leverage, the, the, the owners hold money, and that's, that's ultimately the key to everything. Is it, is it difficult to over-inflate the importance of this particular CBA? I mean, I, 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 the players want to make a stand. That's fine. I understand that. I see why why they would strike if they strike now, Jeff. I think maybe we're, we we tend to talk about these moments as tra- you know transitional, transcendent, changing the league forever sort of things. And I've argued that there's a disconnect between the league's uh, discussion about being a top league by 2022 and refusing to allow for spending that might even come close to to getting them there. Is this is this a big moment, or ultimately, if the players accept a deal that doesn't give them the freedom they want is that okay well i mean it's i think it depends on your time horizon i mean if if the players don't get free agency it, it's awfully i have a hard time seeing how they're ever going to get it i mean granted you know forever is a long time and and each each cba is different but um you know i think this is a big moment i think the players feel like their time is now uh, you know, given every, you know, all the changes in the league with, again, the TV deal, the, the, the big contracts being thrown about the, the expansion fees, uh, you know, it's, things have accelerated a great deal. And I, I just, I, you know, I think this is a big moment. Um, that doesn't mean that it won't be big moments down the road as well. But, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, I think they do feel like their time is now and I can understand why they think that way. I, I don't, I, I don't want to get into, um, I don't want to go too deep into this, Jeff, but I think there's, there is a conversation to be had, and I know people have done analyses, analyses on this question, but you mentioned the cost certainty, the, the being able to predict exactly how much they're going to be spending. That seems to be important to the league, but when we say that, what we mean, and I imagine what the argument is in the room from, from Hunt and Kraft and others, is that because of that, that's where the investment comes from. That's why MLS has been able to grow at the pace that it's grown. And I guess the argument from the players will be, well, if you don't ever take the training wheels off, then we'll never know how big we can possibly be. That is that ultimately that, that it comes down to that that kind of push pull. I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, it, 
I think there's a lot of comfort that the owners take in the structure. And, um, and we've heard it from MLS executives as well. Uh, you know, you keep hearing about, Hey, we're 20 years old, you know, without single entity, we wouldn't be here without, we wouldn't have the stability. We wouldn't be able to have the slow growth. And, uh, but again, you know, like you said earlier, there is some disconnect with what Don Garber is saying and wanting to be this, you know, quote unquote league of choice. You know, I think he, he gets himself a little bit tripped up and, and, and caught in his own words a little bit when he says things like that. And then, you know, in the CBA negotiations, they're trying to claim how they, they don't have any money and, you know, they, they, they don't have the, the financial wherewithal to, to make life better for the players. So, uh, you know, that said, the, the league keeps saying how, hey, we are going to, we're always increased our investment in the player pool and we're going to continue to do that. So that's, that's kind of their, their counter argument to all that. But it's, it, it, there's a lot of push pull. There's a lot of give and take. And like a lot of people, I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll be able to find some middle ground. How difficult is it, and I'll leave you with this, how difficult is it, do you think, at uh, MLS HQ and in various places around the league for, um, for, for MLS figures to reconcile what the Hunt family meant to the league, what the Kraft family has meant to the league, and the fact that ultimately they may be the parties that hold MLS back from, from reaching maybe its full potential in, in, in a shorter timeline? I'm sorry, you broke up a little bit there. Can you say uh, that again? Reconciling what the league owes to the crafts and the hunts, and certainly Anschutz to a lesser extent. Not a, well, Anschutz, you owe a lot, but he's not the, he's not necessarily the hardliner of the other two. But I mean, oh, what reconciling what you owe to those groups versus the fact that they may be holding things back now. Yeah, I think that's a that's a difficult you know uh, dance that that MLS is doing. I mean. You know, certainly these guys have lost tons of money, but, you know, the guys entering the league now are also putting in a lot of money. You know, it was what Orlando was putting in 70 million and NYCFC 100 million and, you know, LAFC, you know, LAFC and Atlanta, you know, putting in similar amounts. So it's, you know, I, I think there, there's a little bit more give and take on that than people might think. I mean, certainly, you know, the league was losing a ton of money in those early years and, and, Certainly, a, a debt of gratitude goes out to the to the hunts and the crafts and and to Phil Anschutz, but uh, there's some new owners that are putting in a lot of money in now. So it's uh, for me, I don't know if that gap is really quite as big as as a lot of people think. Um, last question: You said fifty fifty on the chances of a strike, uh, regardless of whether there is one or not. Do you believe that the players will get some form of free agency out of this uh, negotiation? Since there's an offer, since there's a form of free agency on the table, yes, I, I do think they'll, they'll they'll get a form of that. You know how palatable it will be. I think you know we'll have to comb through the details and and, and really see you know how beneficial it is. But I think they will get some form of free agency. And maybe they can chop off a couple years off the uh, the length of the deal and get that done. Jeff Carlisle from ESPN FC. Follow him on Twitter, Jeffrey Carlisle. It, it must follow right now. And a must-follow for the rest of the MLS season as well, whenever it begins. Jeff, appreciate the time. Uh, fantastic work. Thanks a lot. Hey, Jason, anytime, man. All right, there you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Brian Blickenstaff a bit about Tom Beyer, the man who spread the word about playing technical soccer in the Far East. And, yeah, he's from New York. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk.
Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. That means, yeah, we cover the world. Speaking of that, uh, Brian Blickenstaff, German-based writer for Vice Sports. You are still in Germany, right, Brian? I am, yeah. Okay, German-based writer for Vice Sports is on the line with me now. We're going to talk about... Uh, Tom Beyer, as uh, as the uh, headline of your article says, the soccer dad from New- upstate New York, who uh, is a soccer guru in the land of Japan and is now taking his uh, campaign to China. Before we get into this, Brian, I want to do something. I want to do a favor for a friend of mine. Uh, Mark Y, who you may or may not know on Twitter, uh, is an excellent designer. He's got a T-shirt design over at the Bayern Munich USA store that's a part of a contest. If you guys would go and vote for his design, it's Mark from Buffalo, New York. Bayern Munich store, USA.com slash my dash FCB dash T dot HTML. Go vote for Mark. Uh, hopefully we can push him uh, over the top. <laughs> All right. I didn't, I didn't get approval to do that. Uh, Brian, <laughs> let's talk um, about, let's talk about Tom Bayer. Let's talk. Hey, look, there's a German connection there because you're in Germany. Tom is not. Tom right. is uh, between Japan and, and China. First, give us some background. I mean, I've heard about this uh, this gentleman. I've, I've heard about what he's done for Japanese soccer over the, the last couple of decades. But just kind of outline how he ended up there and, and what an impact he's made for, for Japan. Sure. Um, well, Tom Beyer was a uh, – he was kind of a journeyman pro in the late 80s. Um, and at the end of his playing career, he wound up in Japan, and he loved it there, and he decided that he wanted to stay in Japan. And in order to make that happen, he started to um, to put on little um, like coaching clinics and things like that. And um, as his his clinics expanded, he started teaching something called the Corver Method, which is the Corver Method is kind of like a it's a teaching program developed by a, a Dutch youth development guru in the late seventies. And it's all about like early acquisition of, of ball skills and getting out of learning how to get out of tight spaces with the ball and stuff like that. And um, he got a corporate sponsor. He was sponsored by Nestle at one point, and he kind of grew this uh, this um, an academy system in Japan as well as uh, a system based around these clinics. And um, as that grew, he started to. Um, well, he got, had opportunity to to go onto television, and the what he did was he had a two minute spot every morning on one of the top rated uh, television programs. So when kids were like eating breakfast and getting ready for school, he would give little lessons on on skill acquisition with in soccer. Yeah, and he also had a little uh, thing in one of the biggest comic books in Japan. It was also kind of like a little lesson that would come out every month and teach kids about about uh, about ball control and things like that. And he's basically credited with, with, with bringing a kind of cultural revolution to the game in Japan. Before, before he was there, baseball was really the big deal in Japan. And uh, today, soccer is the number one sport among kids. So... Um, He's, Big pros in Japan have have, have uh, talked about what influence he was on their early life. Shinji Kagawa um, has has uh, has talked about him, and yeah, so so that's what that's what he's all about. Fantastic stuff. I mean, obviously to go and, and and like lots of pros become coaches afterwards, or become youth coaches, or run clinics, and right. I mean, in this country, you got to run clinics dirt, you know, while you're playing to to subsidize your income. And he goes yeah. to Japan and he creates this this program. He's he. For 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 American, you know, to, I think the parallel for American kids, he's a little bit like the Tom Zamansky 
of of Japanese soccer in, in the sense Tommy Zmanski was this guy who would show up on your television on Saturday mornings teaching you baseball stuff. And I think that that's a little bit what this is. Now, um, yeah. so he, he's, a, he's a huge figure in Japanese soccer, again, because yep. he's teaching technique at a young level. Now, now, your story is mainly about how he's going to be taking his plan, his program, to China. And we know, look, China is uh, a, a, you know, when you say it's a sleeping giant in the world of football, that's, that's over, uh, understating it a bit. I mean, they, they've made no noise whatsoever, and yet they have this gigantic, po- gigantic population to pull from. You'd think they'd be able to make uh, some headway, but they, they, they've decided to go to a school model that's going to involve Tom Beyer. Yeah, um, they haven't really figured out exactly what he's going to do. I, I think he's he's still in contract negotiations, but um, but yeah, I mean they're they're planning to to bring a curriculum to twenty thousand schools, and he's going to be involved in in designing that curriculum and training the coaches uh, who will then go out and teach young kids uh, how to play soccer. So it's it's like a massive project. I mean, the scale. I don't know if there's ever been anything on this scale before. Now this is so. this is China bringing their soccer development under the umbrella of the government and we look like most things in china we know about their um you know their sports schools this is why they have the best gymnasts and the best divers in the world right uh they're trying to bring that model they they, they've had more difficult time bringing that to a team sport they're going to try to do this model with with soccer when you talk to tom buyer was there any reservation on his part about the way the chinese go about teaching kids sports and trying to glorify china through these sports yeah, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think that's something that's a a big concern of his at this point. It's not, it's not something I, I shouldn't say that. It's not something we talked about, so I can't really speak to. Okay, speak it, to Tom's, you obviously you know. talked uh, more about the nuts and bolts of this, and and, and look, yeah. it is such a large project with so many different kids. And while he had the opportunity to go on television in Japan, and that's perhaps what spread his mes- message, he's going to need to do that in China as well. Yeah, a lot of what he talked about was um, was changing the sporting culture in China. Um, I think I think that's really w- his big success in Japan. I mean, bringing the bringing the the lessons and teaching kids, you know, these skills at a young age is, is obviously like a, a, a was a good thing for Japanese soccer. But but what he where he's important was his cultural revolution, so to speak. Um, and yeah, that's what I think. That's what they're hoping he can bring to China as well. And and that's something that he talked about. They're, they're going to be doing a lot of work with media and um, animation and trying to get kids interested. Because one of the, one of the problems in China is that there's tons of kids. He he told me there's like a hundred, there's a hundred million kids. I think under the age of six. I have it in my article. So I mean, we're talking about a ton of kids, but the number that actually play soccer is is very low. So their first their first order of business is basically to get kids. You know, to t- teach them what soccer is and and get them exposed to it. Yeah. So, um, so that's a big part of the plan. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the uh, I think that's one of the more interesting things about about him and about his story. And, and as you outline in the in the piece, he's it's not just uh, Japan and and China now. It's he's got a, an influence across that part of the world, across that the hemisphere there. And yet, he is essentially an unknown figure in the United States. And I guess you know, for yeah. a, for a soccer fan like me, uh, uh, the the thought would be, well, why isn't this something that we're doing here? Why isn't Tom Beyer back in the U.S. helping to uh, you know spread the word about soccer to uh, we 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 got millions of kids playing, but maybe they're not getting the instruction or learning the technique that he's teaching young kids in East Asia. Yeah, I mean, I think I think 
That's a good question. I mean, why he's not in the United States is not something that I can answer. You know, I know, I know the the powers that be in the United States are aware of what he's he's accomplished and what he's doing in Asia. Um, I think what he would say to to parents in the United States is that you really can't. There's no age that's like too young to put a ball in front of a kid and 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 you know, like the the point isn't to get the kids really to start kicking the ball. It's to just to get them to like roll it around and. And learn to manipulate the ball on the ground, and and yeah, so I don't know. I think that that message is something that that Americans can uh, subscribe to. Well, okay, is there? I mean, and and look, I, I don't want to paint with broad brushes here, Brian, but is there something? You mentioned changing the sports culture of Japan, but there's something in there's something deeply rooted in the culture period of Japan that may have lent itself to his message that may not be the same thing in the United States. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, you can't you can't deny the 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 cultural factors that that must come into play. Certainly, I mean, I mean, the reach that he had with this magazine, it's called Koro Koro, this this comic book in Japan. There's just like nothing like it in the United States. It has more than a million monthly subscribers and I mean, so uh, so you know, like to uh, to put it put a guy in, on TV and and you know, ha- have him teach soccer is not really realistic in the United States either, I guess. So, Do you, do you believe that he's, when you spoke with him, I mean, what kind of confidence did he express about China's fortunes here? I mean, again, you, you, kind, of, you kind of tie this all back to the Chinese government um, and, yeah. and, and the president, Xi Jinping, who's, who's a big soccer fan. And we, we know when powerful men want something to succeed they will give uh, all of the resources necessary to push that i mean it's it's been true of um of of political figures across time uh, when they want the sports team again to sort of glorify the country they will give everything they can is, is he is he really believe that, that china's got the talent there to maybe one day be a world power and how long might that take well, I think there's no question that that you know if if you can expose enough kids to soccer at an early enough age and give them the the you know the lesson plan to basically work on their own that that they can develop into a soccer power. The question is how long, you know, and and as you said, and and I think I think the president uh, G is he seems to have you know he's taking a pretty longitudinal approach to this. I think I don't think he's expecting. Um, anything to happen tomorrow, you know? Uh, the the schools aren't aren't going to be up and running. I don't think until twenty seventeen. That's the plan. So we're talking about a couple years, and then you know we're talking about starting with the very youngest members of uh, Chinese society. So by the time they're grown ups, I mean you know it's twenty years down the road. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I don't think he'd be doing it if he didn't think it was possible. And, and I think yeah, I mean I mean I totally think it's possible too. Yeah. yeah, you know, uh, um, BDS Moki on Twitter says saying the Corver method is being taught over the U.S. I got introduced to it in 1986. Right? I, yeah, I, I imagine, sure. I imagine it's all over the place. And look, we we just it have is, this yeah. we have this patchwork of of instruction here, and it's not that I'm not saying that everybody has bought in to what Tom Byer is selling in Japan, but certainly enough kids have been caught underneath that umbrella that it has led, led to players like Shinji Kagawa because of, of the emphasis on technique at a young age. And we're starting to see American right. players come through. I mean, uh, you know, there are they're the Tommy Thompsons of the world, the Christian Pulisic of the world. By the way, have you sure. had an opportunity? I, I hate to take a left turn here, but you are in Germany. What, what, do you know anything about Pulisic at, uh, at Dortmund and how things are going there? 
I don't really know. No, I don't. I mean, I know that he's a he's a great talent and that people are excited. Okay, about that's him, but, but I was up there a couple weeks ago and we, we didn't really talk too much about. Uh, him. All right, well, just I, I got I get ex- getting excited about him uh, a little yeah, bit too. Yeah, he's much. showing really well in the U17s right. Yeah, now. let's uh, let's let's turn a little bit more into something else. You're you're right. You've written for Vice. I, I just want to make a really quick point, if I could. Sure. The the point, and I, I mean, I, stopped, I I touched on this earlier, but my, my point wasn't that you know Tom Byer. Uh, like invented the quarter method, I, he certainly didn't. But but what he did was was expose these bite sized digestible lessons that sure. that he, you know nice. that, that that grew out of the quarter method. To uh, I don't a large think I don't think there's stuff. anything reasonably like it that's happened in this country. I mean, I grew up in the '80s playing soccer, and you know what we did? We signed up, we went out and practiced, we played some games on the weekend, we did a couple of clinics. To, you know, when we weren't playing, we had. You know, I, I remember you know foreign coaches coming in and running us through the paces for you know uh, a couple hours every morning for a week or whatever. I mean, it, there wasn't, as you said, what 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 we're getting here is it's it's more about the method he disseminated the Corver method than it is about the Corver method itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah, yeah. let's turn uh, let's turn a little bit to something else you've covered for Vice Sports, and that that's the the growing uh, number of uh, injuries at the top level of professional soccer. Um, give me a, a sketch here of of why we're seeing sort of these um, these musculature injuries happening at, at this point, maybe more often than we've seen in the past. Yeah, well, let me take a quick step back and just say that injuries in general aren't going up. They're they're actually like have stayed have stayed uh, level over the last thirteen or so years um, as as the as uh, the UEFA funded a giant study on on uh, studying year to year type and rate of injuries in at high level soccer. In Europe, so the the injuries on a on a whole have stayed level, but the type of injury has changed, which is pretty interesting. So, for example, ankle injuries are not as big a problem as they used to be, and people are able to treat doctors are able to treat ankle injuries uh, often quicker and more effectively than they used to be. But what's interesting is that every year since the beginning of this study, and it, it started in two thousand one. Um, muscle injuries have gone up, specifically hamstring injuries and groin injuries. But hamstring injuries have gone up 3% every single year since the beginning of this study. And the reason for that is that the sport has changed. You know, as as uh, training methods have modernized, um, players have gotten more and more fit, and the game has become faster and faster. But the human body, you know, like, even though players are fitter, the human body doesn't necessarily have the, the um, you know, the the fortitude to sure. to get through these long seasons so you're seeing more and more and more uh, muscle injuries it's, you it's can kind of you can be as you could be the fittest player in the world and that the, and there's still going to be stresses on your body that could pop up and become injuries and really you know it's limited control i mean i think it's interesting in in the context of what you're talking about Brian and the study that UEFA has done to consider how often we point to the training staffs of certain teams when they have a number of muscle injuries in their squad. Arsenal comes to mind. Regularly, yeah. Arsenal is criticized yeah, yeah. because they consistently have players out with hamstring injuries or groin injuries. And, and I'm not saying that they're, they may not have some issues with their methods, but there is, there is a growing problem with these injuries in general. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly not limited to, to Arsenal. Um, there, it's it's like across all teams that are in the study, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Arsenal was included in the study at least for part of the um, 
of this study. You know, is, um, it, is it a matter of is it a matter of just uh, again long seasons? I mean, we're talking about guys who are playing sixty games a, a year. I mean, uh, yeah. Is it is it just wear and tear, and there's really nothing you can do about it short of holding them out of games and giving them opportunity to rest, or? Is there is there something else? Is it the speed? You know, as the athleticism of, of the average player rises, so does the overall play move f- faster and become more stressful on on bodies. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that that at the end of at the end of the day, if you will, the problem is that people are just playing too much. Like these players are playing at at a level that's so high and so fast that they need to take more breaks. The problem, though, is that how do you really measure measure the load that is put on these players. And that's, 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 the, that's sort of the next step in, in, in trying to fight these, uh, these muscle injuries is figuring out a way to quantify how much wear and tear they actually are, are, are carrying, if you will. It's, it's an issue. I mean, is there any sense that this is something that's being addressed by some of these top-level clubs? Again, I mean, if you're... Uh, you know, if you're a lower level team and you're playing 35, 40 games a year, maybe you're in a cup. Uh, it, it, that's not necessarily as much of a problem as as it is for a Bayern Munich or Barcelona, who's playing in every competition and going deep into those tournaments. Yeah, um, yeah, cl- clubs are definitely are definitely worried about it. I'm, I'm well worried about it. Maybe it's, it's it's I mean it's something they want to address for sure, right? I mean I mean like if you think about. If you think of you, you can quantify how much how much money uh, Dortmund has lost when Royce has been off the field, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it, you can you can you can come up with a figure, and and so they're aware that that if they can prevent injuries, then they can become more competitive, right? Um, the question is how to do that, and and over the last like decade or so, a lot of these clubs have turn, have hired a lot more physical training personnel who. Who design um, training regimes for each individual player? They also spent a lot of money on wearable technology that can measure, yeah. you know, measure the number of steps that a player takes, the speed at which he runs, the number of heartbeats uh, he has in a training session, um, all kinds of stuff, right? But but the problem is taking all these measurements and then turning it into a, a putting them together and 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 turning it into like a measurable thing right like to, to a point where you can agree like okay this guy is over the limit because he's you know done this much work sure, sure. so it's it's a really difficult issue i think and well you gotta and, you gotta, uh, you gotta quantify what each individual who and everybody's different can handle right. and then try to determine when you're pushing the envelope too far and you risk uh, further injury and it's look i don't want to connect these things to do things necessarily but when you see the rise of analytics in in soccer brian and sort of the amount of money that's now being put in to data consumption and trying to, to spit out something that's usable for these teams you know this seems to be something that would go alongside that you know if you're especially if you're a team like i said playing so many games a year that you're putting stress on these stars who are also internationals and are playing for their national teams, et cetera, et cetera. You, this may be in terms of um, you know getting as much money as or you know squeezing as much money as you can out of each individual player. Something that they need to look at as well, and hopefully they are. Yeah, they are. I, I, I'm not sure. You know, a lot of these a lot of these clubs have analytics teams. I'm not sure how much time they're spending on. On this type of analytics, you know, on trying to measure load or on, you know, tactical analytics, if you will. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, it's something that they're working on, definitely. And, and, and in some ways, I think that this might be easier to, to sort of solve than the other type of analytics. I, I, don't know, I don't know where the resources are going, though. 
Brian Blickenstaff from Vice Sports. He writes about soccer and some other stuff as well over there at uh, Vice Sports. It's BK Blick on Twitter. Uh, thanks for your time, Brian, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jason. Okay. There you take go. Care. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up those phone lines, 347-756-6276. How are you feeling about everything that came out yesterday around the CBA negotiations? Did the players get a good offer and pass on it? What's the situation in your head? Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. We're going to get to the phone lines here in just a second. The phone number is 347-756-6276. I'm seeing Taylor Twelman uh, note on Twitter that he's going to be on Sports Center for the rest of the day doing hits on the MLS CBA. I was about to say finally. Finally a little, a, a little love, and that's the wrong word to use here, but a little coverage of the MLS CBA from Sports Center and ESPN. They look they they've backed the league. They've been a broadcaster for the entire history of MLS. We know they care on some level. They, we know they like soccer. This just it doesn't get the run it should. And I know that ESPN FC is a TV show unto itself and they cover all the soccer there, but come on. 510, you're on the air. Who's this? Oh. Yes. Who's this? Hey, what's up, man? Hey, well, the CBA thing again, right? Uh, after um, making it through in the Champions League, I think the players have a little more leverage. I mean, all they have is their skill, the fact that we actually pay money to go see them, not the fact that. That's a lot of leverage. I, you know what? I wonder if it is or, or, or isn't. I mean, certainly Montreal getting through to the semifinals over a Mexican team is a pleat in the, in the league's cape. We, we know that they have struggled in this competition for years and years and years, never won it in this format, and for to have a team, especially a team who finished last in the Eastern Conference last year in Montreal, they've done a, a, a pretty, you know, based on what we saw over these two games, they've done a pretty good job of reforming their team and getting a lot, give Frank Gallup, or sorry, Frank Klopas a lot of credit. By the way, Frank Klopas fist pumping and <laughs> thrust, hip thrusting last night after that game. Fantastic stuff from Klopas. But give him credit for getting his team ready to play. It is a little bit of leverage, I think, for the for the players. But as Jeff Carlisle said, Guillermo, it's not necessarily about now. The owners aren't looking at now. The owners, and even if even if Phil Rollins comes and cries and whines about that that opening game with sixty five thousand that are supposed to be at the Citrus Bowl, ultimately the owners are long term guys. These are guys who you know who make investments that are that they that they want to come good in ten years, in twenty years. Well, Absolutely. Look, they, these folks are union busters uh, as a profession. Only yes. a team is just a, a, a hobby for these people. They they are about the big money, about the long term viability of their profit. I understand that. Uh, I'm not I'm not naive. But what I'm saying is that we have to draw the line. And I'm glad. I'm really actually really proud that the players will, will take it to a strike. This would never happen in Mexico. This happened in Argentina with all kinds of political undertones, but. This this is a good thing just for uh, the sports uh, um, world. I think I think people people need to stand up for what they have. I mean, if they don't believe in themselves, who will? No, I'm with you, Guillermo. But I think the issue here, and, and we covered this um, last week with Dave Zimmer. Part of the problem is in this country that unions have been 
gradually broken up and their influence has been mitigated. And, and, and we've got a country now where people don't identify with union labor anymore. And, and, and look, I know sports is, is kind of different. And in the other American sports, you're talking about millionaires across the board. You're not talking about that yet with MLS players. But people don't identify with these guys as a group, as a labor union. There isn't that, that ethic, that populist ethic that, that runs through the American people quite as much as it does in Argentina, for sure. So that's part of what the players are butting up against. It's not just not just that they want to get free agency or that the the owners are being way too conservative and they're holding the league back and, they, and the players have a right to fight for what they believe in and what they deserve. It's that there's not a culture there backing them up. I, I agree, and I hope we can change that. Listen, real quick, uh, if it does start, San Jose, all the way, man. All right, Ultra. there you go. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Guillermo. Appreciate it. 347-756-6276. I don't think that can be uh, overstated, that there isn't a movement here. Uh, and I've seen a couple of tweets from some various people trying to, to rally and rile up the, the MLS fan base. And, and maybe part of the problem is is while we, we buy into the notion of the supporters' culture and there is a large group of American soccer fans who have bought into that and are loud and rowdy and go to every game and, and stand and, 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 and help create TIFO and all of those things, ultimately they're a small percentage of the overall MLS fan base. And the rest of the MLS fan base is either not engaged, not engaged enough to have picked a side or to care enough about what the players are asking for, are educated enough. And I'm not saying that they, they wouldn't, they can't understand it. I'm saying they haven't looked into it. They're not, they're not on that level. They're the casual fan. And, and as it's been pointed out, and I don't blame, we, we've established, I don't blame the league website for not covering the CBA negotiation and a potential strike. But if the casual fan only goes to MLSsoccer.com for their news, they're going to wake up on Saturday morning thinking about that game only to find out it's canceled because of a strike and have had no idea. Now, 607, you're on the air. What's up, Jason? Uh, I want to get you, what's your take on fantasy soccer? Do you, you play it? Uh, here, here's, here's my usual thing. I, I try. Every single year, I want to buy in. I want to get going. I think this is the year I fully commit to, to fantasy soccer. And we've got... Well, here's... Go ahead. Get, let's get a back heel league going on MLS soccer. All right, all right. you I, know what? I, 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 I've seen some people tweet. I keep forgetting to do it. I usually set it up myself for the best soccer show, and I think I set up the Soccer Morning League last year. I'll put that on the to-do list um, at some point. We'll, we'll get that together. I know we only have a couple days, but I, I think the enthusiasm has been drained for fantasy soccer because I don't know if the season is starting on time. Yeah, I hear you. I hear, but I see, I see the fire players. You're on the plane right now. It's giving me some optimism, man. Uh, there is a, oh. there is a report out there. Some pictures of the fire players flying to LA right now ahead of Friday's game against the Galaxy. If that game takes place, I mean, if nothing else, the fire have a nice little vacation in Los Angeles while the CBA negotiations uh, go on. Um, all right, you got anything else besides fantasy soccer? By the way, stay tuned uh, to this show for some information on fantasy soccer coming up. Uh, we're going to get a league going. We'll get some things happening. You'll, trust me, you'll, uh, you'll enjoy it. Anything else? All right, man. No, thanks for taking my I call. I appreciate that. One. There you go. 347-756-6276 is your phone number. We're here for you right now taking your phone calls on anything soccer. It doesn't have to be CBA. That was obviously a fantasy soccer-related question. Fantasy soccer should be bigger than it probably is. Maybe I should lead the charge on that. 
Uh, we got a couple of things on on Twitter here. Rick uh, Rick in Philly. If the casual fan only gets their news from league websites, they'll never be more than a casual fan. I, I'm not making the uh, that that's true, Rick. But I mean, again, I think that we overstate the number of diehards, the number of people who are watching the news every day to find out th- where things stand. I think that it's easy to live in a bubble a bubble that is entirely populated by people who are like us. It's a it's a feedback loop. I start shouting about the CBA and the people who care about the CBA start shouting back at me. Where of the where are those people who are, you know, again, they buy a couple of uh, tickets a year. They go to a couple games a year. They take their kids, maybe they grab a bunch of buddies and they have a a night out and, and drink some beer, whatever. Those people are those people invested enough? Maybe they have a jersey. Maybe they're following along in the standings every, but they got a nine to five. They got a life. Maybe they they got a life. Not to insinuate that all of us don't have lives. Clearly we do. We have amazing, rich, fulfilled lives. But there are plenty of people out there who are casual sports fans of all leagues, of the NFL, of the NBA, of, of Major League Baseball. I would even call myself, and this is going to be a shock to many people who know me, from my previous non-soccer life, but I would even call myself a casual baseball fan at this point. And I used to pay attention to every... I used to watch every game I possibly could for my team. I used to track the standings every day. I cared about who was the fifth starter. I knew who was not hitting and who was. But now, if you asked me about the roster of my favorite team, I might get three or four or five guys deep before I have to look for help. And I don't think I'm unusual. And yeah, I would know if Major League Baseball was going to have a strike because I would see it on SportsCenter, which I watch, or I would see it on my Twitter feed, which I'm involved in. But I'm not going to presume that everybody's watching all of that news all the time. We need, uh, you know, maybe your phone gives you updates. MLS player sets a strike. Well, okay, but who's going to give you, what, what app is pushing that information? Is the ESPN app going to push that the MLS player is going to go on strike? It might when it happens, but it's not going to give you any lead-up time. You know you're not getting it from the MLS app. That sure as hell isn't happening. Let's go back to the phones. 239, you're on the air. Yeah, I was just wondering if um, if with the CBA and the strike, if they can file like some sort of extension um, that would allow them to go ahead with this weekend based on all the tickets sold and all the, the media stuff. They could they could agree to an extension of nego- of, the, of the negotiations. Clearly, they could the two sides could say, "Hey, we're making some progress here. We don't necessarily think a strike is needed. Um, we have games this weekend that are important, or or you know whatever. The, if the players want to back down again, I think the players lose a lot of leverage if they do that. The players play okay. opening weekend, they lose a lot of leverage, but they could conceivably say to the owners, "Okay, let's put this on hold, and we'll talk about it again after these games." I just don't think that's likely. They'd be operating with the, without a CBA. They have they already agreed, or the reports were that the two CCL teams were operating under the auspices of a previous CBA, which again is technically expired at the end of January. So I, I don't think that that's I don't think that's a realistic possibility, but I, I think it's it could it, you know it could conceivably happen. Interesting. Okay. Right. Well, thank right. you. Yeah, I appreciate the phone call. There you go. On Twitter, Zach says, "Wow, I have a life." It just involves listening to Open Wide for some soccer on the bus and then soccer morning and then moving to soccer morning. I don't have a problem. <laughs> Do we need a support group for, for backheel.com listeners, for soccer morning listeners, 
for Open Wide for some soccer. By the way, go listen to Open Wide for some soccer. They've had some really good episodes recently. If you're not already subscribed to that show, you should be. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I apologize very much to our friend Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com, who hosted on Backheel.com an impromptu CBA special last night with a rack of fantastic guests. They went through all of the analysis of the situation at that moment. I, I don't think it's it's one of those things that's going to be too stale right now. Go download that episode of uh, Unnamed CBA Show featuring Jonathan Tannewald. Uh, could be a good primer for you as we head into what is literally 1159 on the clock, not literally, figuratively, not 11.59 on the clock for the players and the owners if they're going to get this season underway. I'm not sure Chicago flying to L.A. necessarily means a damn thing. We do have word from Simon Evans on Twitter, a friend of the show and a World Soccer Talk columnist, that the players have arrived, arrived at the mediation offices in D.C. and that things are back underway. I want to grab Simon in the near future since he is keeping an eye on those developments. But as uh, as the day goes along, we're all going to hope and pray for the best. Follow Jeff Carlisle, Jeffrey Carlisle on Twitter. Follow Simon Evans, Simon Evans, uh, S.G. Evans, excuse me, unless he's changed it. I believe it's S.G. Evans on Twitter. Uh, and, and a couple of other guys who have been doing uh, some amateur sleuthing work when it comes to the CBA. Uh, and, and you'll be able to get your updates. And, uh, oh, backheel.com, you know, backheel.com on Twitter. Soccer Morning on Twitter will obviously be retweeting and sharing that information as well. All right, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Soccer Morning. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Jeff Carlisle for his up-to-date information on the CBA. Thank you to Brian Blickenstaff for talking a little bit of uh, Tom Son, Tom Beyer, and injuries on the rise, muscular injuries on the rise in world football. Please go to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It helps out a lot. Uh, We're at the Podcast Awards, nominated for Best uh, Sports Show if you want to vote podcastawards.com I think there's I don't know I don't know 10 days to vote or something like that you can go pick up a world uh, sorry a world a soccer morning mug at backheel.com slash store and a soccer morning t-shirt at 3nilfc.com I think that's it right I think I'm I think I've exhausted everything we could possibly well probably not I could be here for a couple more hours but we, we just don't have that kind of time and you people have lives go live your lives Keep an eye on the CBA. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks a lot. Bye.